This episode of the Third Sector podcast is sponsored by Ansvar. Ansvar protects more than 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. This week we'll be speaking to Gosh Charities Director of Fundraising and look behind the scenes of the charity's biggest appeal to date. £300 million, no less. So how are they going to secure all that cash? We'll find out. But first... Andy, you were out and about recently for a special interview. Yes, that's right. I've been speaking to Sasha Deshmukh, who is the Chief Executive of Amnesty International UK. Now, Sasha joined AI UK as Interim Chief Executive in 2021 during a rather tumultuous phase for the organisation. They just had their previous Chief Executive step down amid claims that the organisation hadn't been doing enough to deal with institutional racism. And then he went on to apply for the job and then in June 2022 was appointed as the permanent chief executive. So I went to talk to him about what the organisation has been doing to tackle those issues around racism in AI UK and more broadly about his thoughts on what's happening in the UK voluntary sector now. And I understand that you've selected some choice clips from the interview which you recorded with him. Should we get started? Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about early on in the conversation was fixed term contracts. Now, it turns out that Sasha is on an eight year fixed term contract as chief executive of AIUK. So he'll be there until 2030. And he talked about what that has meant for him in terms of his journey as chief executive. But also I asked him whether other charities should be considering this approach. I think it is something that charities should think about and look at. You obviously have to be respectful of people's employment rights in that situation. You know, anyone, whether you're the chief executive or anyone else, has built up certain employment rights by dint of their length of service. But that doesn't mean that you can't know that you will reach a point where those rights are properly respected in a departure and that everyone is planning on that basis. It is different to lots of what you see in the charity model I think it's healthy in lots of different ways. I mean, it's healthy for a mature charity like ourselves. But if you also think of other charities at different stages in their lifespan, is someone who founds a charity and gets it moving and going and grows it brilliantly for the first decade, are they necessarily the person who has some of the freshness of organisational experience or perhaps other organisation experience for where the next step of scale of that organisation is going to be for the next decade of its life. So is he advocating for current chief executives to be put onto fixed term contracts? Well, he was a bit, as you heard there, he's a little bit cautious around that. He didn't want to be seen to be getting in trouble about employment rights and all that kind of thing. But he makes a very interesting point that actually, you know, for a leader of an organisation over maybe an eight to 10 year period, you might need to reinvent how that organization approaches things things change times change and having a fresh leader every so often can help reinvigorate an organization and get it kind of excited around a new common purpose 
I think there are interesting questions about what that means for individual charities. If they decided to go down this route, is that necessarily a good thing to do? In some ways, you would say, yes, it is, because you don't want someone there maybe for 30 years who's going to outstay their welcome. But then at the same time, you could, I mean, to use a sporting analogy, I remember when the long-standing Manchester United manager, Alex Ferguson, announced that he was going to be stepping down at the end of the season after a very long tenure. And immediately the kind of the performance of the team sort of dipped and it was as if the players were kind of like, oh, well, he's leaving. It doesn't really matter about what we do then. And then actually he changed his mind and said, I'm going to stay longer. And then their performance improved again. So you wonder whether you might get a little bit of that that charities would have to be concerned about. But it really, I really thought it was a, an interesting idea. And he also touched on his views around growth. Yeah. Now, this was in the context of speaking about the journey that AI UK has been through. Now, obviously, as we mentioned, um, he joined the organisation at a time where there'd been claims of racism in the charity itself. And then subsequently, there was a, a very damning report that came out that said that the charity had had wholesale and organisational failures on institutional racism internally at the organisation, which is shocking I think for everybody outside of the charity so obviously he's been working very hard and we spoke at length about the things that he's been doing and the things that he's been putting in place to address those within AI UK he's obviously been working very hard on that but I also asked him where he felt that the charity sector more broadly was at in this area and what his assessment was of the progress that UK charities have been making particularly on racial diversity and he spoke about this being held back by the way charities grow. I don't think that people realise that the ways organisations should be run when there are a couple of you in a room and there are many of you working are quite different. And actually, what do those things need to be? And those things need to be in the most progressive way rather than just barely adequate, etc. So I think charities drift into their growth. They drift into a culture often. They drift into that culture being very negative. And then I think there's a lot of stasis there's probably not a CEO who's arrived in a charity who hasn't been told that that charity is very difficult for things to change. And they're probably being told the truth. But I think what that can happen is that then that gets accepted as and therefore things never can change or change can only be incremental. Change can be big, change can be deep, change can be fast and change can be popular and supported and understood. But it has to be done in a certain way for it to be all of those things or else it could either not happen at all or it could be something that's a very negative experience for the organisation. The need to realise it's that combination can mean that organisations shy away from the change needing to happen and that can lead to these issues being much more prevalent in our sector than I think our supporters would realise or of course be happy with if they realised. The final clip that I picked out is about advertising. Now, did you know, Lucinda, that Amnesty International UK is banned from advertising on British television? No, why is that? Well... That's a very good question. And I asked Sasha why this was. They claim we are political. We are by statute non-partisan. And we exist, and our charitable purposes are very clear that we exist to provide evidence research for the enforcement of the UN Declaration of Human Rights and all of the international covenants and international law that flows from that declaration. So we are very clear that we are a legal enforcement body, a rights body. I point out that my previous employer, UNICEF, 
is very clear that its purpose is to enforce the rights of children. So it's actually a subset of what we exist to do. I think is a gross, unfair and arguably an act of censorship by the advertising authorities in this country that they do not let Amnesty International UK fundraise advertise on on TV. So what is the rationale for them not being allowed to advertise? So basically it's because what they do is regarded as being too political. So but what's interesting is that the the British code of advertising practice or BCAP is different for broadcast than it is for posters and billboards and kind of static adverts. So the charity is allowed to advertise on the tube or on the bus or in newspapers, this kind of stuff, but they can't advertise on TV. And obviously, AI UK thinks this is grossly unfair and they should be allowed to. And he talked about what routes the charity might have to kind of challenge that and they're sort of looking at what they might be able to do but it, it's a really interesting situation and it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, going forward whether they are able to kind of move the dial on this and, and get things changed and if you'd like to read the full write-up of andy's interview with sasha you can find it on the third sector website now just before we get to our main interview we'd like to share with you details of another podcast which is produced by third sector's parent company haymarket Want to know what makes the biggest brands in the world tick? Check out Performance Marketing Unlocked. It's the podcast from PMW, sister title to Campaign Magazine, and it delves deeper into the performance side of marketing and finds out what really drives the leads, clicks and sales behind some of the biggest brands in the world. From social media and AI to CTV and the Super Bowl, we catch up with the biggest news of the week and speak to guests from the top of the industry and at the heart of its biggest issues. Make sure to check us out at performancemarketingworld.com and follow to keep up to date with the latest Performance Marketing Unlocked episodes. Moving on to this week's main feature, how does planning and executing a £300 million appeal sound to you? We're delighted to be joined in the studio today by Liz Tate, Fundraising Director at Great Ormond Street Hospital Children's Charity, or GOSH Charity, and she's in the process of pulling off this very feat. Build It, Beat It is a multi-year appeal, GOSH Charity's biggest to date, and they're just over halfway through. So hello, Liz. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Lucinda. It's good to be here. Tell us about this appeal and how it came about. Well, um, what I would start by saying is the appeal is based on something that the hospital really needs, which is to transform its facilities for children with cancer. So you may may or may not know that five children every day are diagnosed with cancer. So that means kind of as, as we're sitting here, there will be five families sitting across the UK trying to come to terms with that devastating news. And at Great Ormond Street, we have some of the, the children with the hardest to treat, rarest forms of cancer coming to our, our doors. And we treat more children with cancer than anywhere else in the UK. So it's really important to us that we can have a facility that matches the kind of care that we're able to provide for children, the skill that the medics at the hospital have. And there are many breakthroughs in, in medical science happening as we speak, incredible pioneering research happening. And what we need at the hospital is a facility that, that matches that and enables us to bring all of our cancer care facilities into to one place. So it's going to be a transformational 
building and facility, uh, not least for the patients and families who who use it. And therefore, it's demanded a transformational appeal and requires uh, transformational amounts of money. So that's where our kind of fundraising team come in. Great. So it launched in 2022. That's right. How did you go about planning and structuring such a mammoth appeal? Well, there's been a lot of work behind the scenes, as, as you might imagine, over a, a long time. And we're, we're fortunate at Gosh Charity to be building on many decades of, of fundraising experience. But we, we started with building our case for support. And we're, we're lucky that at the hospital, there's a group of what we call clinical champions whose job it's been to understand the needs of patients and indeed medics working in, in the facility and uh, we built our case for support by doing lots of different interviews with those people to understand the true impact that the building would bring to help us kind of develop a really compelling case for support. We then had to think about uh, creating an appeal identity and messaging that would work across kind of our, our multiple audiences, knowing that to achieve a, a target of 300 million, we would be going to everyone we knew and, and beyond our, our current network. So we worked with an agency called Open Creates to develop the Build It, Beat It appeal. We worked on messaging to make sure we have that consistency. We benefited from doing a lot of research into our donors, supporters, networks. We're fortunate to have a research team within our, our philanthropy area at Goss Charity. So a lot of the work they had done to prepare us kind of paid dividends. So a huge amount of work went into planning the appeal, not least how were we going to hit a target of 300 million. And I think what that forced us early on to do was think about going for the biggest, most transformational levels of giving first. We knew that to reach a target of that level, we would need to secure a lead gift of a, a 50 million for naming rights of the Children's Cancer Centre. And we knew that we would have to be working with corporate partners on, on a level that, that we haven't before. So I think all of that planning, setting the target, understanding what we needed to do really helped. And then we've got the benefit, I think, of the longevity of the, the campaign being at least five years means that we are able to split the campaign into different phases to make sure that it stays fresh, um, not least for the public over that that time. So we continue to do a lot of planning around how does the appeal play out over over the years and maintain kind of relevance, particularly in today's climate. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that's going to break down then in terms of the, mm. the different phases of the appeal to keep it fresh for the public? Yeah, absolutely. So we launched publicly just over a year ago now, or around a year ago with the London Marathon Charity of the Year partnership. And, and that for us was kind of once in a generation opportunity. We hadn't been the Charity of the Year with London Marathon since the 1980s. So we used that as a springboard to tell our stories, to build a cast of characters, patients, families, clinicians um, who were able to talk about the difference that the Children's Cancer Centre would, would make to them and people like them. So that was a great way for us to launch. And since then, we've been organising our activities around two kind of moments in the year that we call our kind of peaks of activity. 
And one of those peaks is linked to Childhood Cancer Awareness Month in, in September. So we have our two peaks throughout the year alongside what we call uh, pulses of activity. So activities that might require their own kind of focus, for example, the Amaze Partnership that we currently have have live. And then in April to May time, we'll be going into a, a campaign peak where, again, we'll be uh, talking very loudly and proudly about our appeal and, and the need um, for support to deliver the project. And then we have what we call our always on activity. So behind the scenes, we have a kind of drumbeat of activity for different audiences. And that enables us to test different approaches to learn what's really going to work for when we put our effort behind it in two points in, in the year. So hopefully that gives a sense of how the campaign is playing out. We've still got four more years to go and we're still learning and adapting our approach kind of with every uh, moment in, in the year when we when we can. You mentioned the MAs partnership there. Listeners might not be aware that you've recently announced that you've landed a £10 million partnership with MAs, the fundraising lottery company. Can you talk a bit about how you managed to do that? Absolutely. Now, we partnered with Amaze uh, back in 2021, where they raised half a million pounds for Gosh Charity in our first prize draw with them. Um, We were delighted that they have agreed to a £10 million pledge towards the appeal. As I mentioned, it, it requires kind of transformational giving to make a project of this scale work. And uh, the team at Amaze came to the hospital met some of the clinicians involved in very pioneering research and truly are committed to helping us deliver uh, an incredible facility at Great Ormond Street. So they've committed to £10 million over the course of the appeal and we're delighted to have them as one of our lead partners, uh, along with others such as Premier Inn and Restaurants. There are other biggest kind of corporate partner who are supporting the appeal. And then going into the public aspect of of the appeal which has been going as you say almost or just about a year to what extent are you following on and building on gosh's very strong foundation of appeals or are you kind of ripping up the rule book and really going into new areas more it's a, it's a great question i think we're doing a bit both if i'm honest so we've really tried to learn from the past and we really are building on the great strengths that Gosh Charity has, particularly in its fundraising, thanks to all the people who've worked there over many years. And we've even met with Marion Olford, who led the Wishing Well Appeal back in, in the 1980s, who's given us great insight into how it worked then. So we've taken a lot of inspiration from how Great Ormond Street has run appeals in the past. And there's a lot of similarities, not least uh, having a very tangible project, a really ambitious target a clear case for support and the focus on volunteers and and lead gifts but we have found that some things have changed so for example in today's very connected world that means we have gone public with our appeal earlier than they did with the wishing well appeal or would have done previously because it's very hard to ask corporate partners to keep uh, an appeal and their support behind closed doors actually for them a lot of the value comes in in talking about their support and the difference it it makes so we're working with our partners very differently and actually see there being a real opportunity 
to build on the networks that they have and the presence that they have to promote the appeal. I mean, Premier in a restaurant's a, a huge uh, network <laughs> across the UK. So actually, we see them as being a great great platform to promote the appeal, as is Amaze with the amount of reach they have. So in some ways, we are ripping up the rule book. We're yet to write the, the new one because we're still learning and we are very keen to share the learning that we have with the sector because we are already seeing the benefit of running a big integrated appeal across all of our our fundraising and I know that others may be looking to do the same in, in big charities and small charities alike so we're committed to sharing the learning as we go but we don't claim to have all of the answers uh, yet. <laughs> Are there any specific innovations that you've put in place for this particular appeal that you're able to talk about? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're still innovating behind the scenes and some things haven't reached the market yet. But the appeal identity that we created uh, with Open, the Build It, Beat It appeal, was deliberately kind of designed to help us flex across lots of different audiences so for London Marathon for example we asked people to to run it to build it to beat it and we've been applying that to different areas and a growing area for us is gaming and streaming so we have had a focus on activity where we've asked streamers to stream it and build it and beat it for example so gaming and streaming is a growing area for us and I think the the appeal has a real resonance with with streamers because again it's very tangible and, and people will be able to see the direct impact that their support has so that's one area where we've been innovating but some some of the innovation has been more focused on encouraging giving to be accessible and inclusive so looking at faith-based giving for example uh, and how we can integrate giving around ramadan with the appeal We've created a restricted regular giving product that that we're encouraging the general public to sign up to. And that's called Together We Can Build It, Beat It. And that focuses on the collective impact that we can have, uh, whether you're someone building the building, working in the hospital, giving giving a regular gift. And in, in the pipeline, we've got other ways in which the public will be able to support us that we hope will be a very accessible level because we do want a whole range of people to feel that they can play a part in making this legacy of a project happen. Obviously six years is a very long time for any project and things can change quite quickly. Since you first put this plans in place we've obviously seen the cost of living crisis raise its head. To what extent have you had to adapt and change the plan in response to world events? Yeah. Well, I would say we're adapting all of the time, not least because of world events, but because of the learning that we're getting. And that's kind of a, a key principle of our, our campaign is that we'll continue um, to learn. What we, I mean, you've probably seen the research that shows that giving is coming from fewer people, but people are giving more. So one of the areas we're looking to develop is our mid-value kind of giving strategy as part of this appeal. So that is something that's in the pipeline. And as I've said, kind of we've also then focused on more accessible ways of, of giving in response to the cost of living crisis. But when I, I think about the kind of four years that we've got to go, 
when I think about just two moments a year, I also think well, that's only eight moments where we'll mm. be focusing on the appeal and we've got a lot still <laughs> still to deliver. So although it, on, on the one hand, can seem like quite a lot of time, I think we'll find it goes goes quite swiftly <laughs> when we're in the thick of things. And certainly something that we've learned is that we can't do everything uh, at once. So we would have you know loved to have launched everything with all the different products and ways of giving at the start. Yeah, that, in practice, that's not not possible so having the longevity of the appeal having the different moments that we focus on is enabling us to do more and I hope that that will have a legacy for Goss Charity beyond this appeal as well we'll learn a lot and and be able to integrate some of the innovations and activity into our our program beyond this appeal one thing that's obviously happened that you probably couldn't foresee when you first launched the program would be this enormous inflationary spike that we've seen. Have you had to change that three hundred million pound target? Because I know that one thing that really has changed is building materials have gone through the roof. That's right, and certainly when when I started at Gosh Charity, that was on the basis of us running a two hundred and fifty million pounds appeal. But you're right, you know, at that time, none of us expected to see. Uh, the imp- inflationary pressures that that we have, and the hospital are, are working really hard on making sure that the building represents great value for for money. Um, but we did have to quite rapidly reset our ambitions to make sure that we could deliver it given the uh, cost pressures. Um, but we do believe that three hundred million will be deliverable. Yeah, it sounds like there are so many different moving parts and so many exciting new areas that it must be inevitable that things might not always go according to how you thought they would when you were in the planning phases. Yeah. Is there anything that you could share in terms of things that you've had to completely scrap or completely rethink as the direction has changed since you were thinking about it back in 2021? Yeah, I don't think there's anything we've scrapped, but there are things that have taken longer. So therefore, you know, we haven't been able to deliver yet. So an example is that we would love to be working with a partner to uh, match give the public again to encourage more giving. And that's just something we've learned needs a long lead time. So we haven't yet been able to deliver it. And I think that's the benefit of having a, a long campaign is that we should be able to deliver it at some point during the appeal. So there's not anything we've stopped necessarily yet, but I anticipate over the next four years that we will find that there are things <laughs> that don't work as well. There are things that work better and therefore we we shift our emphasis. One of the things that we've definitely learned in terms of process behind the scenes is the importance of project management. And that's not something that we invested in from the start and we, we've learned very quickly <laughs> the benefits um, of having dedicated project management to help work across all of our teams bring the appeal together galvanize colleagues behind, behind the projects so that's certainly something we're doing differently today than, than when we started and I'm sure in in four years time things will look very different again with with the appeal. Did you have to bring in any additional expertise beyond project management, you mentioned the, the gaming and streaming, did you have to sort of change your staffing structure to make sure that you had the right people on hand to be implementing these projects? It's, it's a great question. And I think that we've been through a lot of change over the, the last few years, as have most charities across the sector responding to uh, the external environment. So we 
launched a new fundraising strategy almost three years ago in, in April 2021. And we then organised our fundraising team uh, behind that, knowing that we had this big appeal coming. And we were fortunate to get the support of our trustees and the investment in our people and expertise within the organisation to deliver an appeal of, the, of this scale at a time where I think that we were still in the midst of the pandemic. So in some ways, we're able to get ahead of of the curve because of that. But we have also drawn on external support. So experts in in philanthropy, uh, kind of consultants, creative agencies. And then I would would probably call out the kind of voluntary support that we get. So Gosh Charity has a long history in working uh, with what we call senior level volunteers, um, which is of great benefit to us. So for this particular appeal, we've set up a campaign board chaired by Eileen and John Graykin, who are also the lead donors uh, for the appeal. So they are working with other philanthropic donors to reach out to their networks. But we're also drawing on the support of our corporate board that we have, as well as we've set up two new kind of committees, bringing in experts from different industries. So we have a gaming and streaming advisory boards and we've recently set up a marketing advisory board to help us leverage the appeal um, and increase awareness of it. So we've been building up our connections and networks, people who are bringing different skills to the organisation and to the appeal in that way. And I'm sure that will continue actually over the the years ahead, particularly if we look to grow and develop new income streams, we we would then reach out to people who know those areas uh, the best and and can support us. And this is obviously a massive appeal. It's your, your biggest one yet. And it's to fund a specific enormous project in the form of of a new centre. Does this mean that all other fundraising activities have been put on hold? And how do you ensure that, if not, that you're keeping people interested and keeping people motivated in the other causes that you're raising funds for? It's something we we think about often because um, the rest of our fundraising hasn't stopped and and can't stop um, because uh, Gosh Charity is the biggest funder of paediatric research. That's something that we need to continue to fund and it's crucial and actually, you know, works very closely with um, the Children's Cancer Centre and the the impact we'll be able to deliver in terms of beating childhood cancer. So we continue to fundraise for our research programme. We have really important programmes in terms of patient support, providing accommodation for parents who might be travelling from across the UK and so on. So all of that, that need is still there. So our what we would call our business as usual fundraising has continued. What we have um, worked hard at is looking at which activities should be integrated with the appeal and be restricted to the appeal and which should continue as is. So as part of our, our fundraising strategy, very simply, kind of we have two focuses. One is to leverage the opportunity around the appeal and the the income that we can deliver for the Children's Cancer Centre, whilst also growing our underlying sustainable income, which will benefit the charity for many years to come. So one can't be at the expense of, of the other. So it means we have a very talented team working very hard a- across that that spectrum at the moment. 
you've obviously worked at a range of other charities as well. You've held senior roles at Battersea and Teenage Cancer Trust before joining Gosh Charity. What lessons do you think that other organisations, maybe they wouldn't be planning £300 million appeals, but that are looking to plan a big appeal, what kind of tips and hints would you give to other charities that are in that sort of position? What we have is quite a breadth in terms of our our programme. So I know we really benefit from that as a charity and each charity's kind of own position will will be unique. But a couple of things I would pull out is that having a really ambitious goal galvanises people, be it your team or your supporters. So that's certainly a learning for me is the real benefit in setting your sights really high beyond what might even feel achievable. So I think that having something so aspirational that will deliver transformational impact really does galvanise people to to give and support you. So I think that's certainly, no matter the, the size of charity, is something that I would advocate for now clearly depending on on the charity it might not be 300 million but 3 million for a a smaller charity might represent the same level of ambition so I think there's something about having a really clear tangible project that the organization galvanizes behind and and fundraisers can't do that alone actually that that case for support and that need has to be a collaborative effort across a charity uh, in particular those who know the needs of the people or, or the animals that a charity is supporting best so I think there's something in the organizational culture that's in, important uh, and the ability to collaborate on developing something that really is quite quite special that people want to to get behind so there are kind of a couple of, of things I would suggest I think also for trustees of charities, the willingness to, to back the the team with investment is key because you can't achieve ambitious goals without that support and that investment in people and activities. So there's something around aligning the risk appetite between between the board and the charity team that is, is really key. And again, for charities at any any size. So a common goal and having your trustees on board sounds like very good recommendations for getting started. Liz Tate, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed our discussion with Liz and that's it for this week. Do join us next week for more fundraising content where we'll be delving into the world of legacy fundraising with the Head of Legacies at the British Red Cross. But for now, thanks to our producer Nav Pal and to you for listening.